0: I'm Jason Helgerson, and you're listening to Health 2049.
1: For me, it's a diverse ecology. It's not a monoculture. It's not about a singular solution. We can see innovation and contribution and development using market methods, and we can see innovation and, and development using social methods. There's a new kind of axis developing that is not about left and right. It's not about you know social versus market. It's actually about forward and backward, an advanced world, a a world that is moving forward or retrograde and moving backward.
0: Welcome to Health 2049. My name is Jason Helgerson. And I'm BC Williams. And together we're launching a podcast about the future of health and healthcare. Health 2049 is about ideas. Our goal is to inspire, to encourage others to see the future, not with dread or rose-colored glasses, but as a design challenge that must be taken up by all of us. We ask each of our guests to describe what they hope health and healthcare will look like in the year 2049. That's right, Jason. And by looking 30 years in the future... We give them license to dream. That said, we don't have time for Pollyannas. Or pessimists. We want their vision to be rooted in science and the art of the possible. We're also committed to diversity. We want to give people from around the world and many different backgrounds the opportunity to tell us their vision for what's possible. So join us in leaving the present behind. And embracing an amazing and beautiful future. This week, we'll be talking to someone whose optimism and big ideas know no bounds. This week, we challenge internationally recognized designer Bruce Mao to think creatively about the state of healthcare 30 years into the future. So without further ado, let's meet Bruce Mao. Bruce, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Jason. Delighted to be here. So,
0: Bruce, please tell our listeners a bit more about your
1: extraordinary career. Um, Well, I'm a designer. I started over 30 years ago uh, as a graphic designer, so I have some perspective. Uh, But over those uh, decades, my work has expanded really to design outcomes of all kinds. So I've designed cities and carpets, uh, brands and businesses, uh, social movements and institutions. I've really applied the power of design to solve problems of all sorts.
0: And I know one of your major projects in your career was coming up with a 1000 year plan for Mecca. So, if there's anyone qualified to ask, uh, to talk to about uh, what healthcare could and should look like 30 years in the future, I think it's you, uh, Bruce. And so, we're so pleased to have you here today. So, I'm going to start out with the same question we ask all of our guests. What does healthcare look like in 2049?
1: I think healthcare will be fundamentally reconceived based on a series of structural challenges that ap- apply to every healthcare system, whether the, that system is market based, like we have in the US, or socialized, like most of the rest of the world. Every year, we add new capacities and possibilities new drugs, new products, procedures, new technologies, new replacement parts. We add and we never subtract. The potential for intervention is ever expanding. The status quo is under constant attack. At the same time, technology is working to miniaturize or dematerialize everything, driving down cost and connecting every device to the internet of things. On top of that, we're developing an AI functionality that will take much of the conventional knowledge requirements out of the practice of healthcare, embedding the knowledge in the devices themselves. As the cost of genetics decreases, Healthcare will become increasingly personal and individual. Additionally, with, with all of that connectedness comes a new potential for data analytics, where we really can learn from tracking our behavior and our genetics to produce health co- outcomes that we want and need socially, economically, and ecologically, using a much more consumer-facing interface. Finally, there will be a lot more of us. We'll be approaching 10 billion people on the planet and the stress on the ecosystem will challenge us everywhere to change everything and live differently. So I imagine a much more interconnected, intelligent ecosystem of life and health rather than the medical system as we know it today.
0: Interesting. So, uh, as I said up front, Bruce, uh, you are a man of big ideas, and uh, your idea for healthcare in 2049 encompasses the entire system on a global basis. But I'm hoping that maybe you can take us down from, say, that 50,000 foot level down to uh, down to the ground floor, and and describe for the audience an experience I think we all have. We all know what it's like to go to a a doctor's office. And so wondering what you think that experience will be like in 2049, given your overall system changes that you see uh, coming our way.
1: Well, I think that depends very much on where you are. I think overall, the biggest difference will be an empowered citizen. If you think about what is happening globally in our possibility uh, we're really shifting power to the citizen, to the individual. You know, when I think back to the, you know, I remember reading a book called The Pearl, I think it was, uh, by Steinbeck when I was in high school, and it was about a doctor who was, you know, all-powerful. Uh, that era is over. What we're really seeing is the distribution of power to the individual. Suddenly, the individual really has access to knowledge in a way that was really impossible for most of history. That Changes the experience pretty fundamentally, uh, where more and more of the potential for intervention in the health experience is actually, uh, resting on the patient, on the citizen. And the healthcare doctor's office experience is much more of a collaborative experience than it is, uh, than it is today even
0: interesting. In healthcare, we often talk about this concept of patient-centered or person-centered care. Uh, but yet, at least in my view, has always been that it couldn't be farther from the truth that whether it's a doctor's office, a hospital, or almost any other mode of delivery of care is almost all built around the provider of the service and services provided at the convenience of the, of the provider. But the world you're describing is one where the patient, the person is the center, they're an empowered decision maker. So one, I think that your, your vision is exciting, but my only question for you is: is it's doability? If we look back um, in my lifetime, now almost 50, 50 years on the planet, the mode and the method of healthcare and the relationship between the doctor and patient hasn't fundamentally changed in my lifetime. What gives you confidence that the fundamental relationship between the doctor, the system, and the patient will fundamentally change? over the next 30 years?
1: I think mostly because it's already happening, even though I I think you're right that the kind of status quo is holding on. But there is a tsunami of massive change happening. Uh, Most of what I described is already here. It's just not implemented yet at mass scale. so It's not accessible. Uh, But, you know, over a decade ago, I did a project called Massive Change. And we did 20 person years of research to try to understand how our capacity to design the world is changing. And what we discovered is so profoundly optimistic that it is really stunning that we don't believe what we are capable of and what we are in fact doing. Uh, According to Ray Kurzweil, living in the 21st century will be like living through 20,000 years of human progress. So the kind of change that is coming and is already happening, uh, I think is really profound. Um, And if you think about what just happened with the coronavirus... The Pfizer vaccine was designed in two days. AI is already making all sorts of routine knowledge actionable on an everyday basis. And most of healthcare is routine knowledge. Now, it's, you know, there's a lot of friction to let go of that uh, because, you know, so many, so much status and economy is attached to it. But that's uh, an inevitability. I mean, that is just happening. And like it or not, that's really what we're going to experience.
0: Interesting. And I know there's been a lot of talk uh, about the potential of AI in healthcare. I think uh, not quite yet uh, realized to the degree to which particularly the advocates for the new technology would like. But certainly, we already have examples of artificial intelligence being able to diagnose certain uh, conditions or to read, um, say, imaging uh, more effectively than human beings. Do you see that as a major development here in the sense of really empowering patients when they don't have to see the doctor as this all powerful, uh, omnipotent or omniscient uh, individual, the, the the super scientist who has to answer the questions that no one else can answer, and that they'll be able to access technology uh, to get some of those answers themselves? Is that what you see as sort of will really change the power dynamic here?
1: I think that's a big part of it. I, I think that when you distribute that possibility, when it's really accessible, when it's really fully developed, I mean for me, AI has a kind of you know it's two-sided. on the one hand, I think the the opportunity to do what you just described is really important and would be profound in uh, transforming not only the experience, but the economy uh, of healthcare. And the other side is that I think AI and data should not be used by the existing system. Uh, We need a new level of governance and regulation that currently really doesn't exist. Our crisis in governance is holding us back in profound ways. And so we need design applied to governance as much as it is applied to the experience and the technology.
0: Interesting, because there are certainly, while there are many advocates for these new technologies and tremendous excitement about their application in healthcare, there are also those who have serious reservations and concerns. And I think you uh, have begun to highlight some of those. The the fear of, of how this new technology could be used to discriminate against people, to, uh, to exacerbate the inequalities that exist uh, in healthcare access and outcomes. But it sounds like you're more optimistic.
1: Absolutely. And I've, you know that's fact-based optimism. One of the projects that I just published in MC24 by a man named Max Roser from Our World in Data looks at the last 200 years and represents that by 100 people over that time. In other words, uh, if you look 200 years ago, if you look at the important metrics like poverty, extreme poverty, uh, 200 years ago, only 6% of the world did not live in extreme poverty. Now only 10% still do. Now when I say only 10%, it's still a, you know a huge number. But what's interesting when you really look at the, at the data, when you look at the graphs that Max Roser did, you can see very clearly where that line is going And it's going inexorably in the right direction. The same is true of infant mortality, of basic education, of vaccination, which 200 years ago was zero. Today it's 86%. So you can see what we're, what we're accomplishing. And it's clear that globally uh, we're already doing it and already committed to that. Interesting. So I, I'll push back a little bit
0: on your optimism in this sense is that disparities exist both within countries and between countries in terms of the many of the outcomes that you mentioned. While I agree with you that we've made significant progress and don't dispute uh, your statistics, we still have very significant disparities. What gives you confidence that those disparities that exist today? will no longer be a salient factor in the healthcare system of 2049. You, you seem to be quite confident that um, all boats will rise.
1: That is my opinion of the, you know, that is my optimistic perspective. But again, it's fact-based optimism. In other words, uh, we've been doing that all along uh, and we continue to do it and we will continue to work on smaller and smaller pockets of extreme challenges that we face. Um, and I think that is that's clear. For instance, just a few weeks ago at the beginning of this year, Plan S was uh, declared. And Plan S is a commitment by uh, a large group of major funders of scientific research that all of the science that they fund will be accessible on an open platform without cost. So no more uh, will the science be beti- behind paywalls? And what that does is it broadly distributes possibility in a way that hasn't happened in the past. And I think that that that's just part of the global movement that we call massive change. It passed without notice for most people; uh, they're not aware of Plan S. But it is a profound structural, fundamental change in the knowledge culture of the world, and it means that everywhere anyone can gain access. And that really is the revolution that we're living through.
0: Yeah, that is super interesting. And and I think massively underreported because I think that the healthcare world is used to uh, new technologies, new treatments, new drugs being patented. And um, as a result of those patents, that gives uh, the maker of those, uh, those new treatments, those new, um, devices, those new drugs, the opportunity to charge quite high prices for those treatments. And I'm not going to argue that, uh, that they did not incur costs, uh, R&D costs and development. But um, the system is that that we have today, at least at its bedrock is this concept that innovation is rewarded through these patents. And I think what you're suggesting is a pretty fundamental change and move away from that in which those technologies, uh, those new treatments uh, would not be reserved for the, that length of time. And, and as a result, um, the prices would come down and, um, and would be more widely available. But that's I'd say, Bruce, that's a pretty significant change from what we're seeing today.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's something that I've been troubling about for, for several years. I was trying to think, how do you distribute access? If you think about the scientific project, you know, the kind of real genius and transformation of the scientific project is that it was egalitarian, It was accessible to anyone. Anyone could write a paper, invent something, prove something, and contribute it to the scientific literature. And your status was not a determining factor in its uh, success. Now, the status and, and the kind of prejudice was still built into the culture, so you didn't escape that, but you could contribute. And I think that is now coming to full fruition And I think that, that you know, that kind of a future, you know, accelerates impact. I mean, I like to say that, you know, Einsteins are evenly distributed, uh, but they're not evenly supported. And the more that we can support access to possibility, the more great contributions we will have. I mean, that's why I'm confident. I mean, think about 100 design teams working on vaccines simultaneously. That's how we're going to beat this thing. And that really is, you know, that's a new era. That just wasn't possible even 50 years ago.
0: Agreed. Although I would say about that, though, is that uh, obviously those design teams, which are a mix of government funded and and private, although the Pfizer's, Moderna's are are private companies, some of those receiving government money, others not. But a lot of those companies had the resources had the ability to, uh, to, to focus on, on the, on the current crisis because they were profit maximizing, because they had generated profits from previous discoveries. They were able to capture those economic rents. And so in essence, they're the Pfizer's of the world are creatures of that system of that I had previously described. But the world you're describing is a very different one. How do you envision that that research is, is financed in the future? Do you see it as a government function? Because in my concern would be is that, uh, if you take away some of the, the profit making potential of these developments by making them more widely available and, and, and less of a proprietary uh, nature, That uh, you're going to get less investment in that uh, unless, of course, the government comes in and makes up for it.
1: Of course, I think you're absolutely right. And um, that's why for me, it's a diverse ecology. It's not it's not a monoculture. It's not about a singular solution. We can see innovation and and contribution and development using market methods and we can see innovation and and development using social methods that we can we can use social institutions to advance the world and we can use market uh, methodologies and incentives to advance the world what we saw really when we when we did massive change was that there's a new kind of axis developing that is not about left and right it's not about you know social versus market it's actually about forward and backward. You know, a 90 degree axis that is about an advanced world a, a world that is Moving forward or retrograde and moving backward, and I think that's a more important axis than the left and right.
0: Interesting. So let's talk about what I would consider potentially a threat or opportunity uh, that uh, the world you describe presents, which is that as the technology advances, there will be opportunities for all of us to live longer, uh, including people listening on this uh, to this podcast right now. But with that, um, as you'd mentioned um, uh, earlier on the population of the world uh, will continue to grow. And so my first question is, do you see those longer lives and the growth in the population as a threat or an opportunity or both?
1: <laughs> I, wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't frame it as threat or opportunity. I think it's a challenge. And right? it's really, um, you know, there, there are going to be more of us and we're going to live longer. I mean, those two, those two facts seem inexorable. Um, and that produces a new kind of challenge because, you know, that, that means we're going to have to reconceive practically everything that we do. I mean, the way we do almost everything today is designed for the short term. It's designed for the top billion people. And we leave the the bottom seven billion to their own devices. Um, and, you know, C.K. Prahalad wrote a book called The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid. And what he describes in the book is that if you really look at the bottom of the economic pyramid in, in the world, and you go down there and you solve those problems, often you revolutionize the top of the pyramid. And what he showed is that almost no design application is being is being directed to that bottom of the pyramid. And when we do direct it, if you look at the work of Rebecca Richards-Cordham at Rice University, what she did that was so stunning is she said, look, I want to take a contemporary doctor's office and put it in a backpack and take it off the grid. So I want all the functionality that I have in a modern doctor's office in Chicago, and I want to carry it into the jungle in Guatemala. That means Everything has to be miniaturized. Uh, It has to have low power needs because we're going to use solar power. And it has to operate, you know, it has to be low cost. And what she did with her team at at Rice uh, was they went systematically function by function and put those functions into the backpack. And one of the devices took a $4,000 piece of equipment and made it accessible for under $100. Now, if you're the maker of that $4,000 piece of healthcare equipment, uh, you know, it's a bad day for you. Uh, but that's possible because we're solving the problem of gaining greater and greater access to possibility. That's an inexorable movement. That's not going to stop. We're going to keep making things lighter, cheaper, easier, smarter, more connected, more intelligent. And all of that is going to make healthcare more accessible.
0: What do you see as the biggest potential impediment to this positive vision of the future becoming reality?
1: I would say the status quo. It's the stopping power of inertia combined with the staggering amounts of money and status that are involved. In other words, there are a lot of people right now who have a pretty sweet deal uh, and a very good life and... Kind of standing in the community under the existing regime but the sand on which that uh, edifice is constructed is really shifting underneath them and i think you know a lot of those people are going to do everything they can to hold on uh, while the world changes and you know that, that i think is true of almost everything
0: so in terms of overcoming that, you're, it sounds like you're quite optimistic that despite that status quo as being a challenge, that uh, humanity will overcome it uh, in within the next uh, 30 years?
1: Yeah, I have no doubt about that. You think about everything else that we've done. I mean, I think one of the most extraordinary things about the human animal is how quickly we normalize what we change. Think about how short a time we've had the the iPhone. I started in the design business when we were still using hot metal type. <laughs> I started in the Gutenberg era. And the change that I've seen is absolutely staggering. I can't remember how we did things. I mean, I can't remember how we did things before the computer was the way that we work. Uh, but we did. We, we managed to produce things every day of the every day of the year so we normalize how staggeringly inventive and creative and and transformational we really are we somehow project that backwards and forwards we think oh it's always been like this and it's always going to be like this no it actually hasn't been like this (laughs) it's never been like this and it won't be like this in the future
0: Well, great. So one final question, Bruce, and appreciate you being on the show here with us today. What question didn't I ask that I should have?
1: Huh, that's a great question. I think the question that I really don't know the answer to is whether we will use all this possibility to advance things quickly, or whether we will hold on to the very last minute. I mean, I think that that it's inexorable. At the same time, the big question that we have to answer is, are we willing to move quickly? Because lives are at stake. Well, thanks, Bruce. That was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so
0: much for coming on our show. Well, folks, that was internationally recognized designer and big thinker Bruce Mao, who is gracious enough to share his positive vision for health and wellness in the year 2049. As always, thank you for listening to Health 2049. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe to us and share this podcast with a friend. Thank you and see you next time.